Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. We're pleased you've been able to join us for tonight's program. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And those are the terms that the New Testament says every believer is now to interact with an older woman as a mother, a person of similar age who's a woman as a sister, and a man as a brother. When people live within a household, whether they're related or not, there is a degree of kinship between them. Over the past few weeks, Dr. Corbett has been looking at the Greco-Roman household and what we've seen is that the members of the household extend beyond immediate family, have no ties by blood or marriage and yet are considered part of the household. There is a vital parallel to be drawn between the concept of family as lived out by Greco-Roman households and the church as a family today. Tonight, Dr. Corbett concludes his series on the household of God. Let's join him now. If you've got your Bible, I encourage you to actually, if you haven't got, a, if you haven't got one of these things with paper and cover and the like, come and see me afterwards. I'll, I'll, I'll give you one. But if, if you have got one or if you've got some other way of going to Ephesians 2.19 please do that and if it's a paper thing put some sort of bookmark or whatever in there and and we'll come back to that Ephesians 2 9 we've been looking at the household of God and as I've asked you to to hold a, a place in in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians the epistle to the Ephesians is all about the church and it's all about the, it's built on the framework it's like it's the the understanding of the church is the flesh but the the skeletal structure is is this concept called the household the Greco-Roman household so when we look at what the Bible actually has to say about the church, it's, we're going to miss out on a lot of what it says if we don't understand this concept of the Greco-Roman household, which was a part of the Jewish world, the Mediterranean world, and into um, Asia Minor as well, which is today modern Turkey. So writers of the day made comment about the household and I've mentioned to you that we use the term household in the Australian Bureau of Statistics it just simply means who's under your roof that's not the way the Bible's using this term the term household and the term householder the one who who ran the house in fact there were people historians of the day uh, I think Plutarch and some of these these uh, classical writers who made reference to the fact that the, the empire was essentially, uh, the strength of the empire was the strength of the household. And the householder was to be the model of virtue in the empire. And without that, the empire would, would collapse, essentially. And strangely enough, it did when that happened. So we have the entire Roman Empire built on the framework of the, of the household. Households were led by a householder, and this is a term that we find in Scripture. We find in First Corinthians chapter one, Paul refers to the household of Stephanus. Stephanus was therefore a householder. It was a title, a description of a person. This person provided for his wife. He provided for his children. He provided for extended family. He provided for guests, and here's that word, slaves. And we've seen that when we use that word, when the Bible uses that word slave, don't think manacles and chains and um, kidnapped from the Congo and brought across the Atlantic on a, on a slave hulk. 
That's not the slavery we're talking about. The term slave is used in the Bible of someone who could be a servant. In other words, they're an employee. Abraham had a servant. He was a paid employee. It could also be a reference to someone who's paying off a debt that they didn't have the finances to pay. So they were serving for a period of time. In fact, the Bible says that no Hebrew could have someone pay off a debt longer than seven years. They serve seven years, you let them go. That was the law. So it's quite a different concept to uh, what, we're, uh, what we're told from perhaps uh, uh, Europe during the 18th century or North America during that same time as well. When the Romans conquered the, the then known world, they would enslave many of their conquered lands. Now that's a different kettle of fish. The Romans, as Tom Holland writes in his book Dominion, they were brutal. They could be, they could, they could, they were abusive of slaves. And in two places in the New Testament, Titus and Revelation chapter 18, that type of slavery is condemned as being one of the grossest sins a person could commit, enslaving another man like that. That's just by the way. Each member of the household, so we've mentioned those people, the husband, his wife, their children, the staff they have, their, their uh, sisters, sisters-in-law who weren't, would, would have been unmarried, uh, grandparents or in-laws, lived in this place called a household. The, the backdrop to my slides is a, uh, a thing that you can visit where it shows what a Roman, Greco-Roman household would have consisted of. You see the columns, they're called colonnades. You see the courtyard area, where, where upwards of two, 300 people could have gathered. Many of these courtyards would have had a pond and a fountain where people could have been baptised, which explains how in, in Acts chapter 16, when it talks about the jailer who he and his household came to Christ and Paul baptised them within their household precinct. But the household was responsible for the protection, for the provisions for these people, for uh, also these people enjoyed the reputation of the householder. So you, it could have meant that they got credit in the marketplace or something like that because of this man's reputation. Each member of the household was also expected to contribute. We saw that the household, all households had rooms with shutters that would open up to the street, the thoroughfare, from which they would sell their wares that were shops. They could sell things that they baked or cooked or made or craft. They could have had certain services that they offered that were a part of the contribution of every person to the household. They were also meant to contribute to the honour of the householder which was a big deal super big deal in those days in, Gre in the Greco-Roman world honour was more valuable than money and wealth and depending on the status of the householder others including an entire town might come to the householder and say we would like to request of you to fund the building of a public bath or a public hall or something like that or it could have been a statue, or it could have been something that they wanted him to fund. 
and they would seek his financial assistance in order to make it happen. And the bigger the request, the more honourable this householder was. The story is told of Alexander the Great, who had one of his generals come to him and petition that he be granted the funds from his years of loyal service to Alexander. And he, he, he said, uh, as he, he had an audience with Alexander the Great, my daughter's getting married and I don't have the funds to pay for the wedding and the feast. I'm, I'm requesting of you grace. The word is charis, as you'll see in a moment. And Alexander said, I grant your request. Write how much you want. And he wrote it down and he presented it to Alexander and Alexander looked at it, gave it to his treasurer and said, get him everything he's asked for. The treasurer looked at it could not believe how much this guy was asking for. It was outlandish. He went and got it from the treasury, gave it to the general, and off he went. And the treasurer came to Alexander and said, why on earth did you grant his request? That was, that was, that was ridiculous, the amount he was asking for. Alexander said this, I was flattered that he thought I had that much. If that gives you any ideas about coming to a loan from me... Um, <laughs> It works in the opposite, just letting you know. So when that happened, when that transaction happened with the householder and perhaps an individual or perhaps it was a town, that householder took on another role, the role called a patron. And they, whether it be the town or whether it be the individual who beseeched them for assistance, became known as the client. In return for this exchange, those Clients were expected to show gratitude and gratitude for the householder, now a patron. Here's, here's the Greek word charis, where we get the word charismatic, which means technically it means full of grace. Charis, and it means grace. In other words, it's a gift given that you don't deserve. You haven't earned it, it's not your wages. I don't have to do it for you. The householder didn't have to do it. He gave it as a, an expression of grace, charis. And what was he expecting? He was expecting that they would then honour him publicly, honour him before others, out in the town, out among their family, among the village, whatever it was, they would expect that he would be honoured by them. And that was his payment. And that was called showing gratitude. And I hope you, as I, I hope you can see that all of these things... I'm going to show you in a moment, relate to God and how he treats us. You know, the story about Alexander. I, I heard someone say, I don't like the theology, but I get the idea. He said, you know, sometimes we pray and it makes God yawn. When we should be praying and asking God for things that make him sweat. Now, that's really poor theology because I don't think God ever sweats. But I, I kind of get the point. Sometimes we think God can't. And so we don't even ask. That tells me a lot about who you think God is. If a householder is a patron, if a householder connected with another householder and, and they agreed that they would help each other, they became known as friends, an official term, friends. And in that relationship, which uh, a formal relationship that happened in the Greco-Roman world, 
they no longer considered their possessions their own. They were available to their friend to use. Which is why I think in John 15, verse 15, Jesus said to his disciples, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. I have been transparent with you. A point I'll be making in a moment. Friends are transparent with each other. And I I hope to show you that this concept of friendship from the Greco-Roman world informs what the Bible says when it talks about, here's a Greek word, the koinonia that we have. Koinonia means common commonality the language is koinea greek it's the common greek of the common people koinonia means we're in community we're in this together and the bible uses that word to describe what in english is translated as fellowship but when friends had that relationship no request was too much because what's mine is yours which is reflected in acts chapter 2 verses 44 to 45 where it says this and all who believed were together and had all things in koinonia all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need that was the kind of relationships that was birthing the church it was in the interest of the householder coming back to him to treat all of those under his his protection and his care and his provision especially slaves with kindness in fact they were so kind to their slave sometimes the slave would perhaps fulfill their debt to him and choose to remain in his service as an employee a servant sometimes even as Augustus Caesar Augustus did to set the example of this he would set slaves free And they would still choose to serve him. Totally set them free before they'd even paid off their debt. And then in other instances, there are accounts where householders not only set a slave free, but adopted them. And we're going to see in the New Testament, this is the picture that we have of God and what he's done for us. We were slaves and he's adopted us, forgiven us, cancelled out our servitude our slavery and adopted us paul refers to this romans chapter 8 verse 15 for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry abba father now i just i need to point this out because this sounds like what about the girls but here's the point do you know biblically what a firstborn son was entitled to when it came to matters of inheritance Anyone know? Twice the amount of the other children. And the Bible calls us, and it's a category, not about gender, it's a category, that if you're a man or a woman, you're adopted, you receive the inheritance of a son. Pretty awesome. So, that's a recap of what we've looked at. I want to now partly conclude this series, and then... Tony's going to be sharing next Sunday and then after that I've got a postscript that's important and we need to deal with it. 
because this is about our church. What I'm saying is not, gee, that's a nice theory, you know, we're going back 2,000. It's not about going back 2,000 years. It's not about looking at something that bears no relationship to where we're at. This is about us today and how we move forward as a church. This has such incredible relevance, it's breathtaking. The, the amount of persecution that is coming upon the church in all parts of the world and unless you are completely blind to what is happening in culture is coming not as a not as a tide comes in but almost as a tidal wave coming in where we already have who would have thought Australian governments legislating that Christians cannot pray for an individual Victoria passed that law in December we, we have legislation that's being proposed in our state of Tasmania that builds on that, that intends to build on that, that you won't be able to pray for someone whom the, the state says cannot be prayed for. And added to that, the state is potentially looking at outlawing what I'm doing right now in teaching you God's word, which is contrary to the lies of culture. And you might think, that'll never happen. It's already happened in Canada. So we are, we are in a point in history right now where this stuff is super important. And I need us to understand this. Because going forward, we are going to need each other. We're going to need each other. So this is membership and kinship within a household. It's fair to say that Jesus... In the three and a half years that he was with his disciples and what he taught them and what they grasped from him completely transformed the social structures of the Greco-Roman world with his new covenant. Let's start with women, shall we? It was completely unacceptable for a Hebrew Israelite man to be alone with a woman whom he wasn't related to. Question, did Jesus ever do that? Yeah, he did. If you haven't seen The Chosen, I've got good news for you. We're going to watch The Chosen, Episode 1, Part 1, Resurrection Sunday night. We're going to put it on the big screen. If you've seen it, I've seen it maybe 12 times, and every time I see it, it man, and I need you to see it. I, 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 I want you to experience this. And there's a scene that they've done so well with Jesus and the woman at the well. And you've only got to look at John chapter 4, to realise this woman had had a torrid life, abused, sexually abused by men, the scorn of her community, and Jesus transforms her. And he's, he's alone with her. Was she safe? Absolutely safe. Was she ever under threat from Jesus? Never, not at any point. Did he validate her as a human being worthy of dignity? Yeah, absolutely did. Did he leverage the fact that he knew she was a vulnerable woman? Absolutely not. I want men to hear what I'm saying in this message about what the church is called to be, to represent Christ. Get this. And, it, uh, and I, I'm, not, I'm not someone who follows Beth Moore. Uh, she's a, a Baptist preacher who... Um, has just left the Southern Baptist Convention in America and it's always a dangerous thing to comment on someone you don't know 
and you don't, and I'm not an American, and Americans are a different kettle of fish, completely, it's, it is a different culture, we might think they talk the same language nearly as us, but it is a, it's different, it, it's different. But let me, let me tell you how disturbed I was to read that Beth Moore, whose, whose husband is a plumber, she's not, she's not a mega church pastor's wife or anything like that, she's Beth Moore. I, I can't even tell you her husband's name, probably Mr. Moore, that's all I know. And she started writing Bible studies for women, how women could be women of God. And she would present these on, I think, a Wednesday night or something in a local church. And, and, and eventually, something like a, a thousand women were coming out on a Wednesday night to come to her Bible studies. And next thing, she's, she's printing these up and, and a contract was formed with Lifeway Publishers and they're going around the world. She, she, she's getting invitations to speak at women's conferences and things. But she's a Southern Baptist convention member they don't let women preach on a Sunday because that's wrong apparently and she tweeted some time back when some a friend of hers who was a woman who's not a Southern Baptist said I'll be speaking at our Mother's Day service and Beth Moore said in a tweet so will I and for that there was a barrage of people who who sent her hate hate not male but whatever it is haters I suppose and so the Southern Baptist Convention leaders told her that's against our rules I don't care if your local church pastor has invited you to speak it's against our rules that a woman preaches in a church on a Sunday Friday night no problem Sunday absolutely not oh and by the way you're a tallish woman and you wear high heels and we want you, whenever you're at one of your conventions with a man on the stage who's shorter than you, not to wear your high heels so that he looks taller than you. Now I'm reading this as the father of three daughters who you don't push around. What are they, high heels? Why don't you, I told you to wear flats to church today, didn't I? My wife is a woman. She's sitting over there because she can't handle the cold of the heat pump. Don't, so there'll be, I know, Zoe said, do you realise some people are going to think you've had a fight, right? Going to think, <laughs> she sits there, you're sitting there, it, it's going to be on. After church, they'll be going, it's the heat pump's fault, all right? That's all you need to know. So I'm reading this about Beth Moore and she's resigned from the Baptist, Southern Baptist Convention. I'm thinking, go girl. <laughs> Absolutely, put up with that nonsense. I'm saying that so that we realise that there are even some misogynistic men in the Christian world who view women in a very negative light. And all the men said, we'll see you after the service, mate. Hopefully you're you're going to say, we're with you. Paul says this, Galatians chapter 3 verses 27-28, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ there is neither Jew now this is talking about access to God it's not talking about whether there is a Jew or is a Greek or is a slave or a free or a male or a female of course there is but Paul is saying something get there is neither Jew nor Greek there is neither slave nor free there is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus in other words who is superior in the church answer no one we're all 
equal. We all have equal access to God. In fact, the New Testament describes the community of believers with a language that that we're going to call fictive kin. Now, if you've got a Bible concordance and you're looking up the word fictive, I haven't seen that in the Bible, it's not there. But it's a word that describes something of the kind of relationship that I'm going to show you from Scripture, what we're talking about. I wrote about this some time ago in a pastor's desk. So here's an example of fictive kin. It's fictive kin language that the New Testament, that I'm telling you the New Testament uses. It's from Philemon, verse 16. And Paul is going to describe to Philemon about his runaway slave Onesimus, who has run away from Philemon somewhere near the town of Colossae in in Turkey, Asia Minor. And he has found Paul in prison, under house arrest I should say at that time, in Rome. Must have been a miracle to have found Paul in Rome. A city then of a million people, one of the largest cities in the world. And and Onesimus found him. And Paul discovers that either Onesimus came to Christ when Paul preached in Colossae and Philemon and Onesimus heard him or he's run to Rome to someone he could trust. He built up a a trust relationship with Paul which should tell you a lot about Paul because some see Paul as a guy but here's a guy who people warmed to. And Philemon's come to Paul and Paul tells Philemon he's now my son in Christ I have led him to Christ Hmm. but now listen to how Paul describes this man no longer as a bondservant slave which a bondservant was a slave for life but more than a bondservant note this this is fictive kin language but as a beloved brother especially to me but how much more to you both in the flesh and in the Lord So let me give you some other examples of this. Fictive kin is a relationship that you have with someone that is not a blood relationship, but it is stronger and closer than a blood relationship. Let me give you this as an example. This is Jesus. This is recorded, I think, in three of the Gospels, which tells you how important this little exchange is. This is Matthew chapter 12. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother... And his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. Someone said to him, Lord, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. So one of the other Gospels tells us that Mary, his mother, was there. We presume that Joseph had died some time back. And it names four of her sons that she had to Joseph. And then it says, and his sisters So there's at least seven people out there waiting and they're all, in one sense, related, blood related because he was the son of Mary, but not Joseph. But here we go. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, and that might sound weird until you realise there were women travelling with the 12 disciples as well. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. 
And those are the terms that the New Testament says every believer is now to interact with an older woman as a mother, a person of similar age who's a woman as a sister, and a man as a brother. This is fictive kin relationships. So kin means related, of the same kind. Fictive kin means closer than blood relative, closer than blood related. Jesus taught his followers to think of God as their father and each other as brothers. We read in Romans chapter 12, and by the way, I think my Google search, my, my Bible concordance search, showed me that there's something like 300 references in the New Testament to this being used. So this is just one of them. You'll find it everywhere. You'll find it almost in every opening verse of every epistle where the term of endearment to the audience is brothers. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Romans chapter 12 verse 1. And I'm using that so that you realise when it says brothers, it's not just being, you know, all hipster. Hey, bro. Or if you're Kiwi, hey, bro. This is actually a deep, deep acknowledgement of the closeness of the relationship. Closer than friend. And a friend was someone in that culture who, if, if you had it and they needed it, they, you could let them, they had it. Brother is something else altogether, even closer. And this is a closer relationship than blood. The New Testament church is built on the Greco-Roman household structure, which is why the New Testament describes the church, and that's why you've got your finger in Ephesians 2.19. It describes the church as the household of God. Now, if you had more than two fingers, you could have put your other finger in Galatians chapter 6, which says, be kind to everyone, especially especially to those who are members of the household of God. And that reinforces this concept of fictive kin. You, you are related to the person on your left and right closer than your own natural brother and sister. All members of a household, household of God, were to regard each other as brothers and sisters. When I asked... Zoe, who's finished her law degree and doing her little bits and pieces to become a qualified lawyer, and she said, Dad, the, the rate of abuse of women in our country is just staggering, and I, I want to do something about it. And I said, well, what do I as a pastor do about it? And this is what Zoe said to me. Dad, you've got to teach the men what biblical masculinity looks like. And we start with Jesus, because that's what it looks like. And it means you treat women with respect. You treat women as sisters or mothers. If you wouldn't do it to your sister, you wouldn't do it to your mother, don't do it to that woman. They were not to think that their walk with Christ was merely as an individual walk. They were to think in terms of together. We walk together. You, you wonder why are we pushing and promoting small groups, home groups so strongly? It's because of this. We need to build the fabric of our community as a church. What is happening is going to, it is, we are going to fall back on it. We absolutely need everyone to be in a small group community where you become all of the things, and I've used some of these key words, I'm going to use them in a moment again, 
Bear with me, we're nearly done. You're tracking okay, Rachel? Just. All right. Do you need to stand up, Rachel? All right. She did, uh, what was it? Relay for life last night. How many hours sleep have you had? None. None. And she's in church. That's for all those watching online who are in bed who didn't come to church this morning. You know who I'm talking about. Christians described in the New Testament were to do life in Christ together. We see... This expression of together, Romans 15 verse 6, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you wonder why we sing? That's why. Because it's something we have to do together. We're commanded to do it together. We're commanded to glorify God together in our singing. To the church of God, Paul says, that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who are in every place called who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Note this, called to be saints together. And here's the thing that I, I want you to see. It's not just us, this little congregation here in this little state of Australia. We're connected to a broader body of Christ in our state. We have brothers and sisters who've never graced the doors of this church who are still, still our brothers and sisters. We need to get that. Romans chapter 12, verse 16, live in harmony with one another. How do you do that if you're going, oh, I'm, not, I'm just sick of church, I'm not into church, I'm just going to do Christianity by myself out in the bush or by myself? You're a dill. <laughs> or as Amanda says, that's just silly. <laughs> Where are you, Amanda? Over there, you sit, I'm just the quote of today, that's just silly. Here I, am. I get Amanda up for a scientific medical expert opinion. <laughs> It's a scientific opinion. Well, that's just silly. And if you think you can be a Christian and do it by yourself on your own with no one in your space, that's just silly. Quote Amanda. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. There's one for our door greeters. There's one for the people at the front table. This walk Together with Christ was to be, here's the key words, and I mentioned it before, transparent. That's why Jesus said, everything my father told you, I've told you. Transparent. The walk that we have with each other, with Christ, is to be transparent. Note these words, honest, forgiving, repentant, basically fictive. To treat each other as someone who we're here to help. We're here to serve. We're here to be a support, to be transparent, to be brave enough, courageous enough to be the kind of church the New Testament describes. Are we in? I hope so. Bearing with one another, Paul wrote to the Colossians. And if one has a complaint against another, leave that church and go and find one where they won't treat you like... Oh, sorry, hang on, sorry. (laughs) Don't know. Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Wouldn't it be great if people describe Lagana Christian Church, that's a church where they've had to learn how to forgive each other. Wouldn't it? Therefore, confess your sins one to another. Here's the transparency bit. And pray for one another. 
that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. This is what I hope will transact in our small groups where someone could say, yeah, prayer point, yeah, I've got one. I'm struggling. I, I have fallen so many times this week and I just need, I need your prayer and I need your help. I need your affirmation. Pray for me because I'm really struggling. And I don't want the group leader to go, right, um, anyone else with another prayer? No, we want to we seize that moment and let, let people who are that transparent feel safe. Each member of the household of God was to look out for the interests of their brothers and sisters by sharing, by giving and by helping. And the householder of the house of God is God himself. When we sang the song about um, holy, uh, there's a line in there which says, he lets me call him father. Isn't that awesome? So this is where I want to bring it up the home stretch now, Rachel. Just hang in. Another, we're nearly there. All right. Rachel said to me, if you can preach and I can stay awake, that was a good sermon. I told you the householder fulfilled three roles. He was a husband, he was a father, and he was a master. Get this, God is the husband to the church. He calls the church his bride. God, the householder, is the father. We are to call him father. We are his adopted children. When you're adopted as children, you get all the benefits of an actual natural-born child. God the householder is the master of all his, and I use that word ministers, and I'll, I'll just put another word that means exactly the same thing, servants. And I was going to say, I wonder who's a minister in this church? And you might all, some, some of you might point at me or Tony or Donna or Ali as an elder or Stephen as an elder. But you know what? Point at each other. Point at yourself while you're doing it. Just do this because we're all ministers. In other words, we, all, we are all here to serve Christ. Therefore, here's the thing. The church is not merely an institution or an organisation. It's a family. It's a fictive family. It's why I'm looking forward to this year having some meals together as a family. I rang Pastor Phil Hills yesterday and I said, you okay to come down in August? He said, yeah. I said, great, we're going to come down. I'm planning to have a church dinner in the evening. Yeah, I thought so too. <laughs> this means that the church, and here's the therefores, this, this church is to be a safe place, especially for women and children, especially for women and children, because that's the way it should be in a family. And I know that there are people here and that hasn't been the way it's been for you and your family. But it's the way it's going to be in this family. The pastor of a church represents the householder. My job is to protect you, to provide God's word as food for your soul and to shepherd you, to, to pastor you. That's why we talk about the COVID vaccine because that's a part of taking the teachings of Christ and putting them outside of these walls beyond Sunday. The local church's members mother 
another role in the household. That means it nurtures its young. So we want to see new babes in Christ, people who come to Christ come into our church and be a part of what God is doing. And here's the, here's the thing that I hope you get. I want us to be the church, not go to church. We don't attend church. You haven't attended church today, Rex. You are the church, Rex. You, you haven't attended. You are. Would you please stand? There are people who don't get what I'm trying to tell you now, but I hope you do. I'm going to come back in a moment. I'm going to, I'm going to challenge each of us to step up to this. And we need to get it, who God is. He is good. He is good. Come on. Thanks, Amanda. Ephesians 2.19 describes the church as the household of God. Paul, in writing to Timothy, 1 Timothy 3.15, which was to the Ephesian church as well, where they had not been doing some of these things. And so Paul says this, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar of and buttress of the truth. I want us to be a reflection of the household of God. Let's pray. Father, hear the cry of our heart. We want every person who walks through these doors, every person who comes into our church community to experience you as the Father who is so good, who is so kind, who is so loving, and if that's, if that's you, if that's something you've never experienced, you've never experienced the God that we're worshipping, the God that we're singing about, celebrating, extolling, the God that we're telling you, we love Him. We love Him more than life itself. We are so grateful to Him for what He has done for us. If that's not your experience, I invite you now. You are not a million miles away. 
You are just one prayer away from being adopted by God and becoming his son or daughter. A prayer that says, God, please forgive me. Come into my life and help me to live for you. Fill me with your spirit, I pray. You pray a prayer like that, I guarantee you, your life will be different. And if you have, let me know, because I want to help you as your brother. And now, Lord, I pray for us, the church, that you would help older men to be fathers. You would help younger men to be brothers. You would help us to treat the older women of this church as mothers. You would help us to treat the women of this church as sisters. You would help us to treat children as people. And that, Lord, we could be a safe place. And that, Father, together we might help each other. And that, Lord, as we get closer to each other through being transparent, being real, being honest, confessing our faults and sins, that, Lord, each one of us would find healing and grace and strength. And so now, Lord, I pray that we might know the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship with the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. As we've heard tonight, the church shares a wonderful kinship, not linked to relationship by blood or marriage. The church is very much a family. That concludes the Household of God series. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.